You are listening to the National University Podcast. Hello, I'm Kimberly King. Welcome to the National University Podcast, where we offer a holistic approach to student support, well-being, and success, the whole human education. We put passion into practice by offering accessible, achievable, higher education to lifelong learners. Today, we're discussing tips on how to start a business. According to a recent article in Forbes Business Online, they recommend that before you begin, get in the right mindset. Consistency is key. Determine your business concept and outline. What kind of business should you start? And research your competitors and market, just to name a few. We learn much more on today's podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about getting ready to start a business, and joining us is Dr. Ricard Briggs, and Dr. Briggs is a committed and well-accomplished global entrepreneur and academic with over 30 years of experience in business and academia. He has founded, launched, and developed seven international businesses related to asset management, healthcare, business process management, insurance, and consulting, as well as developed international partnerships with companies in North America, Asia, Australia, Africa, and in the Middle East. And we welcome him to the podcast. Dr. Briggs, how are you? I'm very well. And thank you for that lovely introduction. I greatly appreciate it. Wow, impressive. This is uh, so interesting. Why don't you fill our audience in a little bit on your mission and your work before we get to today's show topic? Well, I think you did a, a very nice job in uh, covering uh, the, what I've done on a global basis. And my mission right now is with National University, and I, I am a full professor there, and I work in the School of Business. But my main uh, purpose is the responsibility for the Center for Business Management and Entrepreneurialism, or CBEM, as we call it down at the water cooler. <laughs> anyway, uh, what we do is we provide services and support to our students, our faculty, our staff, and the community. And in so doing, what we're able to do is provide a, a golem offering of services and support for individuals starting their businesses or currently running businesses or looking for additional opportunities in the business world. Wow. Well, today we are talking about what you need to do to start a business, and I think you're the right person for this interview. Dr. Briggs, how, can you share your entrepreneurial journey and what inspired you to start your first business? Oh, absolutely. So ironically, I actually started my first business when I was 12 years old. And I'm going to share that story really quickly uh, because it's relevant. It actually uh, segued into the main focus of my business when I started in my 30s, which was uh, global medicum as well as uh, invoice audit services. But as a 12-year-old in New York City, I was asked to uh, help with dry cleaning delivery. And I did so. And uh, the gentleman's name was Howie. He was a lovely fellow. And uh, But at the same time, I was also 12 and I belonged to a local community football team. And they begged me to come play bas- uh, football with them one day. I was their star running back. <laughs> Not really, but I like to believe so. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> Anywho, so uh, I said, oh, guys, guys, I can't do it today. I I have to work at the dry cleaners. And they said, well, Rick, how about we come help you? That way we can get your deliveries done quicker and we can all work together and then we can go play football. I said, hey, splendid idea. So we all went and I said to Howie, I said, Howie, can my friends help me make the deliveries? He says, oh, of course, sure, that'd be fine. So uh, I had, and 
there was two levels of compensation here. The first of which is I got $25 for the day for all of the deliveries, and I got to keep the tips that were given to me by the customers, which worked out to another $20 or so. So I had four friends with me, and the five of us uh, started our deliveries. What normally took me an hour to two hours to do deliveries, we did in 15 minutes. Not, well, 15, 20 minutes uh, between the five of us. But the, the idea is at the end, my friends were standing outside of the dry cleaner. I was standing there with three or four dollars in tips. They all made five dollars each. And a 12-year-old back in the 80s, excuse me, 70s. <laughs> was, <laughs> Who's counting, right? Dating myself now. But uh, <laughs> They, had, they were ecstatic. They're outside standing in the window and I'm walking out of the uh, the dry cleaners and Howie says, hey, Rick, don't forget your $25. And so I was ca cash on it every day. So he gave me the $25. Now I'm holding $28 in my hand, which is probably $8 less or $10 less than I would normally have made. And I'm looking out <laughs> at my friends who were ecstatic that they had $5 each because they're going to get ice cream. And my first thought was outsourcing. Now, I, I didn't come Bingo. to that conclusion immediately, but that's in essence what it was. It was a, a, an individual who took a, a workload and then designated it to others, took a lower percentage of revenue, but was able to provide a better service and more expeditiously. Now, the, ironically, in my main corporation that I established later in life, and that's what I did, except instead of outsourcing to my friends, I went to the Philippines, to the Ukraine, and to India. And I had call centers and uh, contract workers all around the globe which worked out brilliantly, uh, applying that same principle that I learned when I was 12, when I was in my 30s. So and in between, in between there, there were a number of other businesses that I started and then sub subsequently sold, which turned out uh, actually a, a great profit. But more importantly, it taught me about the, uh, the, uh, the nuances of real estate as well as business development. And now after I retired or sold my major company, uh, a client came back to me and said, hey, Rick, remember you were telling me about all of the uh, opportunities that you had for investing globally and moving money around to avoid not to avoid taxes, but to minimize your taxes. I said, yes, absolutely. He said, could you come in and show us how to do that? I said, sure. I went in and he said, hey, uh, by the, as I was leaving, he said, oh, by the way, what do I owe you for today? And I said, really? Money? Uh, we'll call it $500. But that basically was the beginning of a new business. And now I do a consulting firm for small businesses called Steinbeloff. And what we do is we provide uh, financial consulting services for small business development, bookkeeping, and tax services. And uh, it was one of those segues that just uh, it evolved into a business just based on a request of a client. And I, I was truly happy about that. And that now is my side hustle after uh, I'm doing my educational work. Good for you. Wow. I think I might call you after we're done with this podcast. <laughs> I love your style. And you know what? And always that lifelong learner, like, oh, well, this sounds interesting. I like, I like it. What key lessons have you learned from your experience as an entrepreneur that you would pass on to someone just starting out? So uh, th that's a great question. And I think uh, to put that in uh, perspective, I think the, the, the one thing that I learned um, and has been consistent in everything that I do is to focus in on a goal and uh, put blinders on until that go uh, goal is accomplished. Now, that entrepreneurial spirit or mindset, as I call it, it is uh, 
can be learned. Uh, not everyone uh, set, sets out to be a, a, an entrepreneur or a business owner. It's the desire to change your lot in life, per se. Uh, and, and, and I argue and I consistently tell uh, individuals that running a home is a business. If yeah. you're... A, a stay-at-home mother, a stay-at-home father, and you're handling the bills, you're handling all of the responsibilities, you're doing uh, all of the chores with the children. That's a full-time job. You have what it takes. You already are running a business. So that leap into doing something outside the house is not that great once you put it in perspective. So I think a lot of people feel apprehensive and worried about getting into the business world. And I tell them, but you're already doing it. I said, now all we have to do is find something that you can benefit from outside the home to generate mm-hmm. a little bit of additional, uh, additional money. Now, it, it's that small step. And I, I see the biggest mistake that a lot of small businesses make is that they look uh, beyond what is realistic. They, 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 uh, they have this great grand plan about creating this incredibly large and profitable business, when in fact, the reality is you need to start small and, and then build up. And that has a lot to do with prototyping and testing the market. A lot of people and things have changed dramatically over the last 20, 30 years when it comes to business development. In the days, if we go back to, uh, let's say, the 80s and 90s, individuals would create a business plan and then they would go out. And let's just use a pizza shop for an example. They would uh, create their business plan. They would open up their pizza shop. They would buy the equipment. They would sign the lease for the the agreement uh, and they, they would hire the employee buy all the equipment and the, the supplies, open their doors, and two months later, they're out of business because yeah. they didn't. And the number one reason businesses fail is, quite frankly, the expenses exceed the revenue. So mm-hmm. what we're doing now is much more of a, 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 a simple startup. And basically, that means is we instead of opening that pizza shop, what we would do is we would invest minimally in what we needed to make the pizza, and then we would market test it, uh, deliver it for free, say, uh, test test whether or not it's a viable product for the market. Get clients and customers before you even open that front door. And, and using that philosophy, and, and that's kind of a rough draft of it, but basically the simple process is uh, look before you leap. And what that does is it saved, saves countless thousands of dollars. And I remember at one point in time hearing another financial consultant say, oh, don't worry if you have to file bankruptcy, uh, you, you can always start again. No, no, that shouldn't no. be your first thought, right? <laughs> Do that. Yeah, I mean, that's just ridiculous. So we're doing everything that we can to help individuals start their businesses uh, at a minimal expense and be successful. And the other thing that's most important about that is if it doesn't work, you, your losses are minimal and you try a different product. You've got the you've got the idea. You've got the market. OK, the pizza wasn't an exact fit. Maybe subs will work. Let's try that. And <laughs> you, you test the market until you get that feedback. Well, that's really, it's so true. Uh, yeah. And you don't want to start off with that failure in mind there, right? Eh, just file bankruptcy. No. <laughs> um, how do you recommend aspiring entrepreneurs uh, identity and validate market opportunities effectively? Uh, so that that's a great segue uh, into the last question, and that's market research. Uh, I mean, uh, let's, yeah. again, let's 
back to let's let's look at old school protocol uh, because uh, quite frankly a lot of the individuals now who are are at that age where they're starting their businesses or starting side hustles are uh, gener uh, the lower end of generation X and millennials. So we have individuals in their late twenties and their early thirties that have an, an inordinate amount of resources uh, online, but at the same at the same time we still have that capability of doing uh, physical research and that physical research is the yellow pages as simple as that let's go to shop again if you open up the pizza shop in your in your local community yellow pages and there's 20 pizza shops there not a good idea right. <laughs> that's very basic market research and just to share this really quick story um, I did the same thing with uh, invoice audit services. Um, I was at a Christmas party and I had these, heard these two gentlemen talking about how poorly their company was performing in the market. And in essence, one of them said, and I think I'm directing, uh, doing a direct quote here, was if another company like ours opened up in our market, they'd make a million dollars because we suck. <laughs> and so my immediate response was, hmm, what's invoicing? I knew yeah. nothing about <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing about it, but I identified the opportunity, did some brief research and taught myself what an invoicing company does and how to solicit clients. And that was the opportunity. So the sometimes an opportunity is a passion. Uh, people who uh, love skiing open a ski shop. People who love bicycles open a bicycle shop. A pizza, the same thing. The other area of opportunity identification is market need. And if you walk into a town and there's a, a no Chinese restaurant or dry cleaners, well, there's a market opportunity for you. So those visual clues and market research help tremendously in, in identifying opportunities. And it's the same with uh, and circling back to a minimalistic approach. Once you've identified that opportunity, some basic market research through the yellow pages, through the internet, through the chamber of commerce, which mm -hmm. would give you identifiable business platforms that have succeeded and failed within the course of the last decade, that helps tremendously. So. Mm -hmm. We've all seen this. I'm sure we all have that one shop in town, that one restaurant uh, or corner building that every three years it's a new restaurant, right? Yeah. And, yep. and you, yeah. And you say to yourself, well, wait a second. Aren't these people looking at the track record for the last 20 years? There's been 10 businesses, 10 other restaurants in there. <laughs> you know, why right. are you open? restaurant there. Okay, maybe it's a better idea, but if you've had 10 different restaurants, I don't care what your idea is, that's a, <laughs> that's a pattern of failure in that specific market. Use that to your advantage. That shop's better as a, a, a drugstore at this point in time. That's a really good point. And we, you're right. We all have these. And I, at some point, this is going off my, my original script with you, but I do want to find out what your thoughts are on those big box stores. And, you know, I see them going out of business now because people are shopping online. So anyway, that might be another conversation, but uh, maybe your thoughts as an entrepreneur. Well, this is where it, this is where it gets really interesting. Um, so, I, one of the the next business that I I had in my early twenties was a bicycle shop, and I opened up that bicycle shop uh, not because I really wanted to do bicycles, but because it was an opportunity in the market, and I really wanted to stay on the resort island that I was staying at at the time, and I couldn't figure out a way to uh, do it financially other than doing this. So basically my objective to opening that business was to stay and party. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
I'm being honest. That was my opportunity, and I had to figure out a solution to my problem, and I did, and that's what I did. But at, I, about four years after I opened up the bicycle shop, Walmart opened up right down the road. And uh, uh. at that point in time, this is what the late eight, early 90s, uh, and Walmart opened up, and this is when the big box stores were really shutting down Main Street. If you, yeah. if you remember back time there was an article every week about businesses closing down main street's going to be uh completely desolate because it's big, st- right. big box store are taking all the business well you know, here we are 20 years later and the big box shops have been replaced by online shopping online but that shopping has opened up new opportunities for main street again so those smaller shops that provide service as well as uh food and resources are, are, are flourishing uh in comparison to the big box stores that are now closing so i'm seeing a complete transition from uh small shops to big shops to online shopping to supporting local communities now so there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for small businesses to get back to that big uh, to that main street drag and start small again you know what and just to the, your point and then i'll get to the next question i promise but you i if we're getting ready to go skiing and in our local uh shop there's a gentleman that's worked there in the ski shop and he does the ski bindings he fits your boots uh, for 40 years and it's unheard of but his customer service is unmatched i don't know it's old school and he he has customers that continue coming back just because of him and he's brilliant. Absolutely. So I love that old school style. Absolutely. Um, and we're, we're seeing a resurgence of that. And I love it. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, what strategies do you use to stay updated on industry trends and changes in consumer behavior? Because you always seem to be ahead of the curve. So I want to hang out with you more often. <laughs> uh, I would argue that a lot of the information, <laughs> okay, um, so we have to be honest here. So, and there's two answers to that question. I am at this point in time much more educated than I was in my 20s, in my teens, in my 30s. So mm-hmm. I could say at this point in time, oh, it's got to be market research. You have to you have quantifiable data. You have to look at the statistics for business failure rates, uh, demographics, uh, population size, market share. Okay, nah. <laughs> we don't yeah. do that in our twenties. In our twenties and our thirties, we're like, "Woo, let's go, let's go! How are we <laughs> going to do that? How are we going to do this?" So, and I, I talk about this, and I, I, I can talk research all I want, uh, but the, the gist of it is the, the the easiest way for younger people and uh, individuals who are interested in starting a business. And I, I love this idea because this is great. So. You want to start a business and you go to your family and friends and you say, hey, I want to open this pizza shop. And your family and friends are like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I love that idea. Oh, that's great. That's going to be great. Okay. And you hold out your hand and you say, okay, I need a little bit of an investment. And now this is where the, the, the rubber hits the road. So if they're willing to give you that check, you're on the right track. If they're like, well, you know what? Well, let's think about this a little bit. There's your answer. So if your friends and family, yeah, they'll support you until they have to write a check. And if they're willing to write a check, (laughs) a good idea. Oh, that's a, that's great idea too, though. That's a good way to balance and understand. So when evaluating a business idea, what criteria do you consider to determine its potential for success when they write that check? And then is there, are there any other potentials for success? (laughs) 
Absol well, absolutely. I, I think the easiest way to explain this is, are you solving a problem? And, mm. and that's a question that you have to ask yourself. Is there, is there a problem in the market that needs a solution? And if you can answer that affirmatively, then you're on the right track. Again, using the dry cleaner. Is there a dry cleaner in the market? No. Okay, that's a problem. Can I find a solution for that? Yes. And if, if you say, is there a pizza shop in the market and there's 20 of them? Well, that's really not a problem, is it? Because you the market's already saturated. And you can use this uh, process over and over again until you identify that opportunity. And, and I think it's very important to stress this. A lot of individuals uh, want to open their business based on passion. And it doesn't matter what their passion is. Uh, that's that. That really has to be countered with a, a practical solution to the market. You can have all the love in the world for skiing, but if there's 10 ski shops in that town, it's not a good solution. Well, uh, can you provide examples of how you've turned your own passion or, or your idea into a profitable business venture? I love your beginning uh, and how you did this when you were, what, 11 or 12 years old. So you started off as a, an entrepreneur, but it sounds like you've also had a lot of support behind you as you've gone into each venture. I, I did. Uh, and uh, one of the things uh, <laughs> I'll share this story, uh, too, because it's, it's really um, uh, impacted me and it, it changed who I was as a person. So I started uh, my uh, smaller businesses and I, I wore uh, I did everything uh, from balancing the checkbook. You know, we had checkbooks back in the day. <laughs> Reconciled. <laughs> Reconciling the checkbook, uh, doing the marketing, uh, hiring the employees, doing the interviews, doing the work, cleaning the bathrooms. And nothing. If you're a business owner or a, a single member LLC, well, you do everything. And there's no job too small and there's no job too big. The problem is, as I found out later in life, the business that I opened up for a Global Medical and Invoice Audit Services exploded quickly. Uh, so I went from a, a two, three person shop to having 75 people within the first year. Now that was very problematic. I turned out to be the uh, leader that was sending out horrific emails at four o'clock in the morning. I was working from four till midnight uh, and I was uh, tired, exhausted. I was sending out these emails that were just terrible. And we've all had bosses like this. And it turned out I was the boss from hell. Uh, and it wasn't a, a fault that I had. I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how to deal with that uh, much responsibility. So what I did to fix that problem was I actually went back to school and I went and I learned uh, through the master's program for organizational leadership. And the, the beauty was that I had a test bed. I had a business up and running business. So I would sit with my cohort. We had these great discussions on what we could do to increase market share, change corporate culture, increase productivity. And I would take these ideas and I would take them right back to my business and implement them. And I had the best test in the world money so at the end of the month the revenue was going up the employees were happier uh, and my staff was happier and I, so i saw a positive effect on this so there's two things i learned there the first of which is you have to be able to reflect and see what you're missing in your organization uh, excuse me what you're missing yourself because you can't wear all of the hats. And then the second thing is that you have to be able to reflect on what you're doing wrong. And more importantly, it's if you really want 
to succeed, the more knowledge you have. And I'm not suggesting that education or the academic track is the best way to go. What I'm suggesting is that the more information that you have, the better decisions that you can have. And one of the key elements that I was able to offer my startup company was I couldn't afford to uh, hire top tier people. And I needed top tier people in order to make this endeavor work. So I came up with alternative uh, compensation packages that were very lucrative for individuals who had already retired, who were single mothers or single fathers. Uh, and what I did was I them, since we were a global operation, we were open 24 seven. So uh, at least in the call centers, I changed my US practice to being open 24 seven, which then allowed the flexibility. I had employees coming in at 10 o'clock at night and working till six o'clock in the morning, single mothers. So that then they had the whole day to spend with their family. The father would take care of however they work their thing. We had these flexible schedules. I had people coming in on the weekends and doing 20 hours in order to cover their entire week. And I accepted that. And this is where we go into this uh, strategy of a, a quid pro quo. If you're going to work with unsupervised, oh, this is before remote uh, work. So actually, I guess you could say this was sort of remote work because there were no supervisors there. And all they had to do was meet the requirements on a weekly basis. So I offered them that. I offered them uh, the, the Cadillac of benefits so that they uh, they could, I would put the money into benefits, which was much more lucrative to people who had families and, and were concerned for with health. Maybe one of their children had diabetes and they needed uh, uh, this expensive medicine at that time on an ongoing basis. So I was able to recruit and retain people based on alternative compensation packages. Then what I ended up doing and figuring out was that if they had skin in the game, they were that much more committed. So I converted the company into uh, an uh, initial public offering, and then I became a stock center. And I gave stock to my core employees, and they owned the business. So uh, when I finally sold the business, they bought, they bought my shares out. That was it. Wow, that's incredible. And again, you know, you're just you're thinking so far ahead and what a, a great opportunity for your employees to be vested with you um, in your business. In a competitive market, how do you advise entrepreneurs to develop and maintain a unique selling proposition? Well, so Back in uh, 2010, a gentleman, uh, Eric Reese, uh, had written a book called The Lean Startup, which initiated this business canvas model. The business canvas model, in, in essence, replaced, uh, for all intents and purposes, a business plan. As I was saying earlier, that what we're doing now is we're prototyping and testing the waters before we actually invest capital into it. Well, he did the same thing, and he basically did it out of uh, Silicon Valley. This was back in, I guess, the 90s or so, and uh, when app development was at its peak. The problem with app development is that by the time it took uh, to develop an app from idea to market, it was already obsolete or competitors had beaten you to it. So he came up with this uh, this process of prototyping where the app wasn't complete, but he had a prototype of it on the phone. So he could say to a client, he could say, well, this is what it's gonna look like and this, these, these are the options. But if you click the options, nothing happened. Uh, so basically he was selling basically uh, an, an empty storefront and then he was gonna fill the stock later, which worked brilliantly. And, and th that's what I suggest that businesses do at this point in time. It is you, you put up, you, you make it look pretty, and then you worry about putting the engine in later.
Yeah, that's a good point too. Wow. Um, so what about your strategies that you've used, doctor, to use dif- to in- differentiate your businesses from competitors successfully? Oh, boy, that, that's a good question. And, and there's so many tenants uh, that we could talk about. Uh, so the differential uh, and one of the arguments, and let's go back to this big box uh, scenario. So customer service, we've all had these experiences now where we're dealing with individuals who really are just pressing buttons. There's there's no commitment. There's no understanding. As I tell people, everybody learns different. Every customer is different. If you don't appreciate the differences in your customers then you're and you treat every single one the same, you're missing tremendous opportunity. Uh, so understanding mm-hmm. uh, the demographics of your market, understanding the customer needs at this point in time for smaller businesses is absolute. The the, the other area that many, many businesses fail in is additional products and services. If you have a customer that they're coming into your store, they like you, they, they want to do business with you. Well, what other opportunities can you can you give to that customer? And the only way you can get that information is by asking. So if a customer comes in and let's say you do own that pizza shop and, and you say to that customer, so, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing uh, dinners, uh, you know, catered dinners during the week. Would that be something that you would be interested in? And the, the person says, oh, yeah, I, my wife and I or my partner and I, we, we, we hate to cook. And, you know, we're, we're just eating these frozen dinners during the week. Oh, yeah. If you would deliver, you know, on maybe a Tuesday and Thursday something something nice, that would be great. Well, that's an additional opportunity. Wow. So a lot of people don't lose sight of the fact that their customers are coming to them because they like you. And it's based on that relationship that you can even grow and expand your business. So no matter what your business is, it, it, it helps bells. If, if you're a handyman and you're on that pizza shop and <laughs> someone comes in and says, it says, oh, I, you know, I, it was a terrible week. You know, I had a leak in my, you know, my basement. You say, oh, well, I, I do plumbing. I, I do all my own plumbing. Call me next time. I'd be happy to help. Wow. Right. You know, that's great. And your, your students are so lucky, blessed to have you because your ideas. I mean, again, this is something that is kind of an old fashioned reach in so many ways. And I think we've gotten so far away from that. Um, just really utilizing what our own gifts are and, um, and just thinking outside the box. So I love it. How should new entrepreneurs approach financial planning and budgeting for their startups? Carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> so, so that's that's I love that question. I love that question uh, because uh, unfortunately, um, financial literacy it has been overlooked um, a, 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 over the course mm-hmm. of the last twenty years. I one of the main issues that I see when uh, I can I do tax and accounting for a lot of small businesses that they don't have a grasp on expenses and revenue and. Uh, costs associated with conducting a business. They write checks, they write checks. Just to give you an example, uh, I had a gentleman come in and I I took a look at his invoices and I said, you're you're paying $800 a month for your your internet connection. And he says, yeah, that's what what I was told I, I needed. Really? Okay, so let's take a look at that. We made a couple calls. We got him down to $140 a month for the exact same. Oh my God, wow. 
but we all do this. When, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm not being facetious here, but when was the last time you looked at or uh, called your electric company and said, hey, can we do better on this? Or when you called your the uh, electric company's competitors and say, hey, here's my bill from last month. Can you beat this? And the, the, surprisingly, the numbers are amazing. And that's the trick. It, it, here's the thing. I'll give you a perfect example. Planet Fitness, 10 bucks a month. They've got millions of members and only five show up. But how 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 do they do that? Right. Well, they got you on this ten dollar a month plan, and people Membership. are like, ah, you know, it's only ten bucks. Yeah, you know, it's only ten bucks. I'm not going to cancel it this month. I'll get around to it next month. And before you know, you're six months into the hole. Yeah, <laughs> they're making it, the money, and, and you're. Yeah, it's yeah. not your investment has gone out the window and there and then it does add up as you're right. You 10 bucks might not seem like a lot, but and my husband and I just had this conversation because it seems like now even car washes, they're running on memberships, aren't they? And here in Southern California um, that, you know, it's a membership model for many, many uh, businesses. So um, and the reason that those subscription models are working so well is because it is a tremendous moneymaker and the consumer's losing. Yep. Set it and forget it. And we do. That's so true. Um, what advice do you have for securing funding or investment in the early stages of business? So, we all statistically in the, the empirical data that supports this, the majority of startups are funded through credit cards and family investment. Uh, and that's just the way it is. Uh, or you're taking it out of your own personal savings. So uh, my advice there is to be as frugal as you possibly can. Uh, if, 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 it, if they're asking for a twenty, thirty thousand dollar uh, deposit on rent, don't do it. Uh, you don't have the money. You don't have the the resources to cover that expense. Just to give you an example, the number one bankruptcy uh, filings back in the early two thousands were medical offices. Uh, primarily, oh. you had these, you, yeah, you had these MDs and dentists graduating from their respective schools and running out and. Uh, no offense to their degrees, but they were throwing up a shingle on their door and saying, okay, customers, clients come on in and they weren't getting anyone. And someone came up with this subscription model that basically they walked in and said, we'll set you up. We'll, we'll get you all the equipment. We'll get you the staffing. We'll, we'll do all the painting and everything for one low fee of $23,000 a month. And these, they were signing up for it. And what had happened was they didn't realize they didn't have enough clients, patients to cover it. And they were yeah. within months, they were in over their head and filing bankruptcy. And that's why you wow. see so many uh, group, uh, medical groups, not sole, pract uh, sole practitioners. Remember when Ooh. we were going to age us all, but remember when we were growing up, there were lots, there was your local uh, doctor in town, yet now mm -hmm. it's your local group in town. The only way they can afford these expenses is by uh, community uh, joining together. That's a that's a good point, and you do you don't really see it's rare that you see them as an individual. Uh, this is such great information and great advice. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but more in just a moment. Don't go away. And now a national university tip on getting started. For me personally, I knew I wanted to pursue an education due to what I wanted to do in, in life. But if I had to look back at somebody in my same position, I would tell them, for one, get rid of every reason why you can't go to school. Just deciding and then committing to it, the first place to start is 
what do you enjoy? What do you care about? And if there's a degree that you know you can translate that into, then let's go after that. If you're unsure, talk to somebody who's currently in school. If you're serving with somebody who's going to school, talk to them about it and what their experience is like. The thing is, I truly believe as far as the general education, it's a perfect time to develop an understanding of what you wanna do. It helps you figure out what you wanna do. There's always going to be room to adjust, to make changes. And so looking at anybody who was sitting in my position and they're thinking about going to school, I would tell them to go down to that college office. They can guide you and, and help you figure out what it is or ways that you can make it happen. And now back to our interview with Dr. Ricard Briggs, and we're talking about what it takes to start a business. And Dr. Briggs, it's been so fascinating. What legal aspects should entrepreneurs be aware of when starting a business and how can they navigate them effectively? You're going to get sued. Uh-oh. Well, know that's going in. Yeah, that's the attitude that you actually you have to have. I mean, we live in a very litigious society today, uh, and the 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 real issue is here is for smart startups. Uh, we can't afford uh, uh, that type of expense, and uh, we certainly can't uh, have that uh, with our reputation. And and that's unfortunately the reason a lot of lawsuits are filed is they know that they're going to get resolved because nobody really wants to a uh, incur the cost and b they don't want their reputation tarnished. The the real issue here is uh, can you afford it and what can you do to circumvent these requirements? The first thing that you have to understand is that as a sole practitioner or a sole proprietor you can represent yourself and that means that you can communicate with the court without uh, an attorney once you incorporate once you become an llc or a limited partnership any type of corporate structure uh, the law requires that you're represented by counsel that's a problem because that's a, an incurred cost now mm. are you able to show, shoulder the risk and i i did this with each one of my startups uh i <laughs> the good news for me is i had nothing when i started so <laughs> my my philosophy was eh, sue me what can you take i don't have anything. Uh, and the good news behind that is, quite frankly, most uh, attorneys, most law firms will only uh, proceed either if they're getting paid by the client on a or on a contingency basis if there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And if there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, they're not going to take the case. So mm -hmm. that, that's a, that was a positive for me. Obviously, now that's very problematic. So I'm insured out the wazoo. <laughs> And that's that's the process. Uh, you start with how much risk can you uh, shoulder? And then as soon as you have the opportunity to secure the proper insurance, whether it's error, errors in admissions, a general liability or an, uh, an umbrella policy to cover that, you add them according to your revenue. And I would argue that that's the most important part of covering your business or, as they say, your assets. <laughs> Boy, and you know what? I guess that's, I mean, you don't think about it, but you have to think about it. And you're right. Are we ever living in a litigious society? So it's good to, uh, you know, kind of go through all of those, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly just yeah, ahead of time. Can I just add on one point there? Sure. Uh, which I 
note, which I forgot, was there are a tremendous amount of free legal resources. There are pro se uh, support groups at your local courthouse. Not all, but there are, I've utilized them myself. Uh, SCORE, which is a, a national organization that helps small businesses, also has retired attorneys that can offer uh, legal advice and support. Now, the problem with uh, attorneys is that it, once they start talking to you, uh, unfortunately, the way the court views it is if the, the client, not the attorney, believes that there's a reasonable relationship or the court believes that uh, that person had a reasonable belief that there was a relationship, well, yeah, the attorney's in trouble. Whereas the SCORE and the economic development groups, as well as the pro se, have contracts and are absolved from that level of liability. So those are the best resources where you can actually get honest advice from attorneys because they're not fearful of the, the court coming back and saying, ah, 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 you're their client. Now you have to represent them forever. That's fantastic advice. That's great. Thank you for for uh, letting us know that. Are there any regulatory challenges that you have faced and how did you address them? So uh, that might be one right off the bat, just prepare, prepare to be sued. But what about those challenges? Uh, so uh, uh, let's see. Yes, there are. There's there's licensing requirements and there's growth pains. Uh, unfortunately, uh, if you're doing business in business in multiple states, especially uh, in today's uh, uh, internet environment, that's more common than not. Uh, and there are requirements that you register and pay taxes in every state that you're working in. Again, very problematic for a small business. You're you're a small business, and a, a customer calls you. You're selling shoes. A customer calls you from. A you're in New York and they call you from California. Well, congratulations, you're now doing business in California. Okay, yeah. what are the legal requirements of registration as well as uh, tax liability in that specific state? A lot of these things are overlooked. So you, uh, your account, here's the shocker. It's when you go into your accountant at the end of the year to have your taxes done and you say, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm doing uh, business in 12 states. And he says, well, we have to file in 12 states then. And oh, suddenly boy. you say, you say, well, wait a second. Uh, what? How's that going to affect my tax bill? Well, it's a thousand dollars per state. What? Oh my so, lord! Oh yes. Yes. And, yes. So uh, I've seen a lot of small and <laughs> a lot of small businesses will skate under the radar and basically ask for per, uh, forgiveness instead of permission. Oh my goodness. Well, that's good to know as well. Ooh, heads up, right? You should be writing books every day <laughs> or blogs because it's such fantastic information and advice. Um, could you discuss the importance of a comprehensive business plan and its role in guiding a startup to success? Uh, so, yes. Uh, and there's uh, there's two ways to look at the business plan. The business plan uh, has become fairly obsolete. And I don't mean that in negative context. Uh, business plans generally were utilized by lending institutions to validate a business. Now, So here's where it gets really interesting. Even uh, when we were still writing business plans uh, by hand or using a typewriter per se, uh, they were the, most of the information was being articulated by the business owner who had very little knowledge of market research and demographics. So in essence, they were faking it. So they were just filling these pages of, you know, 100 pages of information that they created uh, willy-nilly, which really meant nothing from a business perspective, but it was a requirement of the lending institution. And once they got it and they kind of held it in their hands and felt the weight of it, and they said, oh, this is a great business plan. Well, how do you know? Oh, because it's got 100 pages. <laughs> that was their oh. litmus test. And, 
yeah, it sucked. Uh, and, yeah. And what it does, <laughs> You're spinning your wheels, creating this, you know, they're making an obstacle for you and no one's really doing the work. Now, but for all intents and purposes with AI right now, you can write a business plan in 15 minutes or mm -hmm. the machine can write for you, which actually has more relevant information than you could ever create yourself, which is a tremendous tool. It's still a requirement for financial institutions, but from a, a layperson's perspective, you have AI write you a business plan and you read it. Well, guess what? Yeah. You just acclimated yourself to real research, to real information that, that gives you a leg up on, on what's going on. But the interesting thing is that the business plan, as I said earlier, is we re the last thing we want to do is borrow money. Uh, we, we can, uh, for small startups. Now, that, don't get me started. Once you validated your business, once mm -hmm. you're up and running, yes, run down to the SBA or to an SBA lending institution, take out a million uh, and, and grow your business because you validated the idea. You've got revenue that's exceeding your expenses and you, you can grow your business. So the, 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 again, you, you've got a valid idea. So now you can get that investment. Then if they ask you for a business plan, you've got the data that you can provide them. You know what the numbers are. So that information is much more relevant. Uh, so it, we have moved from what I would call a fictitious, from a, a, a non-fiction book to a fiction book, excuse me, from fiction book to a non-fiction book, uh, i.e. a business plan. Well, again, that's uh, great information to know ahead of time. Uh, small businesses, you know, people just think, oh yeah, I'll just start a business. But um, all of these are going to be really essential uh, elements for people to know this. What, what elements do you believe are crucial to include in a business plan? Uh, so I would argue that the most important uh, element in a business plan is the, the market research. Uh, you need to know uh, what your demographics are, whether or not, and from those numbers, you can derive percentages as to the number of clients you can anticipate or customers coming into your location. And that's, that's the number that you really want to have in your head. Uh, if I open this store, how many people can I expect or anticipate to visit? And that does require research and that does require support and help because you just can't open a book or type into the internet, how many customers am I going to get? No, mm -hmm. you have to, there are, there's a process for that. And there's, a, a, and that's where you conduct your market research. How can aspiring entrepreneurs assess their strengths and weaknesses in terms of skills and resources that are required for their business? I, I, I get that. It's a great question. And it's, yeah. uh, people ask me that all the time. They say, you know, what, how am I going to do this? And I, I, I tell uh, individuals, and uh, this is where it gets really neat because uh, a, a lot of individuals are very apprehensive. Uh, and we, uh, I work with a lot of uh, individuals who are introverts and they're like, well, I, I could never do that. And I said, well, you're in luck because now you can sit behind a computer screen and create your own business. We couldn't do that 20 years ago. So, there's a so now you're seeing the surge of internet growth and you have individuals uh, sitting anywhere in the world on a beachfront having a margarita at two o'clock in the afternoon selling, right. selling on Amazon. Which is that's a tremendous opportunity. I, I think the skill set that is most important for an entrepreneur, and let me just put a caveat in here these are learned skills. Uh, and it's, uh, I hear this, you know, this all in leadership all the time, you know, is a leader born or created? And it's the same thing with entrepreneurialism. Are uh, you? Do you have that entrepreneurial gift or are you are you destined to be a business owner? And I say, no, no, no. 
you you can learn this process. It, it's self-taught. And I, I started off a little bit differently, but I've worked with a lot of individuals who would never have dreamed that they could actually have a little side hustle that has now grown into their full-time job. And, wow. uh, and I've worked with all sorts of different types of people uh, from a very conservative, uh, people that you would never imagine uh, would want to do something outside of whatever job that they had. And now they're, they're flourishing. And I, I love that. That's, those are the happiest stories that I see. I love that too, because, you know, I, I think we all are learning to have that side hustle and really follow our passions, right? But when you can make that your full-time gig, how amazing is that? So, um, and you're right, we can be anywhere and do our work, it seems today. So one, and I'll, I'll sh let me share this story really quickly. Um, so someone came up to me and they said, it happens more often than not, I want to do this. And my first question is why? And they say, well, you know, I, I, I want to send my kids to college. I, I want to uh, I want to take a ski vacation. OK, great. You've, you've got a goal. And so let's figure out something to accomplish that goal. And then mm -hmm. we can build upon that. Uh, so it, it, it's goal objective. There's a significant uh, cost differential between sending three children to college or going on a skiing vacation. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of people think that, you know what, I'm going to open up a business that I can cover all of that or something to provide that. I, I say, no, no, no. I, I say, you want to do your ski vacation? Okay, great. Take a part-time job on Starbucks uh, on the weekend for eight hours. Okay, mm -hmm. do that for six months. That'll cover your uh, your ski vacation. Oh, I, I never thought of doing that. Well, I wanted to do a business, but you said your goal was the ski vacation. This will accomplish <laughs> that goal. But more importantly, what that does is it puts you on a task-oriented pattern. Okay, you see your goal, you fill it, figure out the solution to the problem, and you accomplish that. That solution problem resolution is the key driver behind entrepreneurialism. Wow, that's great. What strategies can they employ to fill gaps in expertise or resources? So I guess going along with what that passion is, uh, but how, yeah, what, what resources do you have? So as I, as I, as I've mentioned, uh, I started off wearing every hat in the organization <laughs> uh, and that's, that's problematic because no, no, no one's an expert in everything. That's, that's an absolute. So you, you want to prioritize where you need the most support and help. And uh, quite frankly, if you're a terrible leader, then you need to step back and hire someone uh, to do yes. the management of the organization and you you take a supervisory role. It's that uh, self-reflection that allows you the ability to look for help where it's important. You need to basically do a self inventory and figure out where your weaknesses are. And that's where you start getting outside support. Again, there's a large number that are federally subsidized, they're school subsidized, they're uh, locally subsidized organizations that support small business growth. Why? Because it's the backbone of American uh, society and culture and economics. So they have all of these resources that most people don't know about. That's where you start with your help. Once you've identified where you need that support, where you need that help, where you need additional resources, then you reach out to these groups and ask for help. Great. I'd love it. I just have a few more questions left. And, and how do you adapt your marketing approach to changing consumer behavior and technology trends? Oh, that's I love that question. Uh, and I, I'll share this. Uh, the the main reason my main business was so successful was I started that business right at the, the 
at the, the crest of the internet. So uh, what I realized immediately was that my competitors were not utilizing this new technology, i.e. the internet, and what at the time was basically a new marketing strategy called PPC, pay-per-click. And I mm. remember I had, a heart, I had a heart attack when I started <laughs> advertising on PPC, and I had to pay a nickel a click. So anytime mm. someone clicked my ad, it would cost me a nickel. And I thought, ooh, I'm not going to pay a nickel a click. Mm. Yeah, well, the same ad today is $55. Oh my so, gosh. Wow. Right. A so pioneer. We were in the beginning. A nickel was a steal. And wow. my business, that's why I went from a zero, from three employees to 75 in six months because wow. we started advertising online. I created, I self taught myself how to create a website. I added the content myself, created my own PPC. I Good taught myself basic skills on, yeah. on how to market online. And I'm sharing that story with you because we are now in a new era where businesses have the opportunity to use AI to do the exact same thing that I did 30 years ago. We have this new opportunity that they can utilize this technology to expand their business, to open up doors that they never thought was possible. So I'm going to see, you're going to see a revolution with new business models and practical application of mm -hmm. utilizing uh, artificial intelligence. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. You know, and you kind of just answered this because as we're shifting from the way that you've done everything into now AI, uh, marketing strategies that you have found most effective in building that brand awareness and attracting customers, how, what would that be? So, uh, so we're to, uh, uh, being coming from uh, you know a child of the eighties. Uh, no, no, that's when that's when I started. I was born. I'm older than that. But I got my start in the eighties, and print right. media what uh, was the way to go. Uh, yep. I mean, we did uh, yellow paging, uh, yellow pages, uh, direct flyers, marketing. That's what was available. That's what we utilized. And, and but right. I learned the strategies uh, and figuring out the percentages or ROI on each one of those mediums. It, it and that philosophy hasn't changed at all with technology. We have uh, our digital media now. We have mm -hmm. uh, you know Google, social media, Facebook, all of the the platforms, Instagram, Snapchat. All of these have are different uh, marketing tools. And again, but the strategy hasn't changed. You dip your fingers in or you, excuse me, you dip your toes in, uh, you mm -hmm. see what you're with a minimal investment, you validate the ROI on that, excuse me, a return on investment. If you're mm -hmm. spending a hundred dollars, you should get a, and you're, if you get $110 back, great. You, you're you're $10 in the plus. That's a good, mar yeah, that's a good marketing strategy. Right. If you put in a hundred dollars and you get $50 and you only get $50 back, move on to the next one. So it, again, it's prototyping from a, uh, from a, a marketing standpoint again, but the, the marketing availability with digital media now can cover a, a vast amount of uh, area that you couldn't do. There are tips and tricks for all sorts of digital marketing. Again, these are the types of questions that are an individual who has experience in that. It's they're worth their weight in gold. Spend the five hundred dollars, take a marketing class on digital media, and let them walk you through the process. That five hundred dollars, again, that five hundred dollars will pay off tenfold. And again, you you gain based on your ROI. So that is great. And again, it's really, um, you know, learning on your own. And then again, if you have to, one of the first things you said is delegate that out. Um, but you, you know, like having other people that are well equipped that have that knowledge and then ultimately paying them to do that work. And it maybe even that means AI, uh, but obviously you have to keep eyes on that as well. 
What were some of the significant challenges you faced during your entrepreneurial journey? And and then how did you overcome them? Wow. Uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think, and I, I shared the story uh, earlier that the greatest challenge I had was figuring out that I was ill-equipped to handle uh, the business uh, or not so much the business, uh, employees and understanding how to communicate and respect the people that were helping me build my dream or my or my vision. And one of the, the things that was most apparent was that, and you'll see this, uh, let me just give you this example. If you walk into a local coffee shop and uh, it, you've got a, a younger person and I'm not being uh, you know, picking on the, the younger generation, it could be an older person too. But in my experience, I, I'm walking up, I have a younger person and they're giving me attitude. Uh, I, I'm like, you know, you know this, this isn't right. I, they're not in line with what the owner owner's vision is. So that disconnect, and it's not the employee's fault, and that's where the problem lies, because in, in, you're walking in there, and this person's representing the organization. It's not what the owner wants. I don't think anyone, any owner would ever want someone, uh, an employee, giving customers a hard time or making them feel poorly. So it's the owner's responsibility. And that was my disconnect. I I allowed, I hired people. I didn't share my vision with them. And we were on different pages. And that's where the poor service and the, the disconnect between the clients came. My clients would call me up and say, hey, this isn't working. What the, what the heck's going on? And then I would go in and I would find out that someone else is doing something completely different. And I wouldn't do it that way. We weren't on the same page. That's great. And again, that's having that, uh, you know, what is that 50 foot view, that vision above, right? To just say, yep, what am I doing? And, and it's so important to share that mission and vision. Thank you for sharing that. Um, how important is resilience and adaptability in dealing with setbacks and pivoting in business? Oh, uh, that's what <laughs> that's what we do. That, that's what we do. Um, the gist of that is you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Um, I, I, I had a, a friend recently tell me a share a story about how they had one server. And in essence, what that server did was that was their sole backup. And they didn't have a contingency plan for that. But what that meant was that when that server went down, they were left holding the bag. And, and so what they quickly figured out was, mm, you know what, next time I'm going to have not only one backup, I'm going to have two backups so it doesn't happen again. But that mindset is built based on that error. That mistake that was that transpired enabled that individual to think outside the box and say, you know what, uh, my banking account, I've got this checking account. Uh, I'm going to make sure that if there's an overdraft, it's covered and they link another account to it. So you start this process of learning from your mistakes and then that basically covers all elements of your business. And I'd love that too. You know, we, I think we need to realize that, yeah, nobody's perfect and we're all kind of, we're, we're learning as we go. So those mistakes um, that we've made, that's uh, the, uh, one of the largest way that we can learn. So thank you so much. I could talk to you all day, Dr. Briggs, very interesting and great advice. Um, if you want more information, you can visit National University's website at nu.edu. And again, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was, it was lovely speaking with you as always. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to the National University Podcast. 
For updates on future or past guests, visit us at nu.edu. You can also follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.